Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I'm Gaz and with me as usual is my good friend Baz. How's it going Baz? Hello Gaz, very good mate, very good. I've uh, managed to get through the heatwave as we all have and they're not melted completely. Just, but my dice are now two dimensional. <laughs> <laughs> the little puddles of plastic with crayon floating on the top. <laughs> yeah, the, the sun's been out in force, some might say radiant. Taking radiant damage. Oh, That's right. You know. oh. Just throw that one in there. And it's not just me and you. We've got uh, another special guest for this time. It is the creator and project lead for Radiant Citadel, uh, Ravenloft writer and man of many other things, Mr. Ajit George. How's it going, Ajit? I'm good. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Absolute pleasure. So, uh, I guess the first thing to kind of lead out with is Radiant Citadel's not its full title. It's uh, journeys through the Radiant Citadel, but just for listeners' benefit, I'm not going to make that whole sentence every time we mention the product, <laughs> just because otherwise we'll be here for an hour and a half. But no, it's um, a lovely looking book, just hitting the shelves now, or available virtually and all the rest of it as well. Uh, what makes it different, I guess, the first thing, which everybody's talking about, is that it's it's unique and it's come from lots of different creators from lots of different backgrounds. And, uh, you know, it's just got a different flavour completely from perhaps the, the Eurocentric view of fantasy that's come before. So I guess, do you, do you want to give us your pitch for Radiant Central Citadel, first of all, just to give our, our listeners an idea about what we're talking about? Yeah, it is an anthology of adventures written entirely by people of colour from primarily the US, but also over, uh, internationally from Latin America and uh, Southeast Asia uh, as well. Um, so it is, it is the first of, in D&D's nearly 50-year history uh, of a book entirely written by people of color. And in fact, people of color were in very formative positions throughout the book. And so all told, over 50 people of color worked on the book. And that's like the art director, the marketing director, multiple consultants, two-thirds of all the artists, uh, and so on, designers on it, uh, and so on. So. Uh, it, it is a remarkable feat, um, not just even in D&D's history, but I, I was trying to come up with, um, you know, any game, uh, even video games that might have 50 people of color working on it. And it was like, you know, maybe Rockstar or Riot hires like, you know, when they're 500 person team for one video game, maybe 50, 50 people of color by accident happen to be in that number. But right. um, I, I, th- I think it's it's pretty unique, even in the video game. Yeah, that's great. And it's not just um, that it's people of colour, but it's from different backgrounds in terms of what each of the adventures is going to be. So it might be, you know, Polynesian or Thai or some other kind of ethnicity and background and mythology. So the diversity of the material as well is just, just comes from different wellsprings, right? So it's, it's got to be a whole new attack from a, a point of view of where you're getting your inspiration from. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I, I think each, so each of the writers uh, really drew from their own backgrounds and their lived experiences, their family histories, um, and the legends and lores of, of, of the myths of their of their cultures um, to create this book. And it informed a lot of decisions around the book too, you know, just, just different perspectives about how to approach conflict or how to approach storytelling or, or how an adventure might, you know, go in different paths that was all informed by just a different different perspective that you will get from you know the different people the different writers and their their um their their cultural backgrounds i was intrigued to look into the radiant citadel itself because this is like the cornerstone of the project isn't it so you've got uh, is it 13 adventures 
That's correct. Yeah, okay, yeah. Across levels 1 to 15, and they all sort of use this sort of central location as kind of the, the springboard into those adventures. But the, the Radiant Citadel, if you, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a, the lowdown on the basics of what the Radiant Citadel is, and, 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 and I guess the leading question would be, how is that different to Waterdeep or, uh, or Shan or any of the normal, typical, I should say typical, uh, fantasy cities that we've all seen come and go over the years? Yeah, I, I you know, sort of my log line or my, my, the way I kind of describe um, the Radiant Citadel is, you know, it's a, the city of stories and sanctuary. It is a bastion of hope. It was a city built by 27 great civilizations in a time lost to ages and, and abandoned for unknown reasons, but then rediscovered and revived by uh, descendants of 15 of those civilizations about 250 years ago. Um, it's a crossroads city and one that welcomes all in need and of good intent. And the city is enormous and, and filled with strange magic. And I, I very much, it, it falls into a category that I that's sort of come about in the last few years called Hope Punk, or actually the city itself, the book I think is more of a Hope Punk book, but I think the city itself is more in the solar punk. And those are two adjacent um, the, themes. And, and that I think is one of the, the major differences from a lot of other existing cities in D&D, that, that solar punk feel to it. I also consider it a fragile utopia and that is also, I think, pretty dissimilar from um, a lot of D&D cities, which are, you know, marked by a lot of violence and a lot of uh, strife and uh, a lot of dangers just lurking around the corner, whether it be from the local thieves guild or from a beholder that happens to be living under the city, you know, all the usuals, right? And so this, this city is very unique in that regard. Hmm. Okay. And I've seen it described, and it may have been by yourself, I'm maybe quoting you here, as like almost like New York in that it's a melting pot of cultures. Was that you, actually? Yeah, that, that was. You know, yeah. I, um, I I was born in New York City and right. grew up most of my life in and around New York City. Um, and so it's the city that I am most familiar with and has the, the most cultural impact on me. I did not start with envisioning New York City when I started creating uh, The Radiant Citadel. Um, I started with actually what the writers had done first because in many ways it felt appropriate. The the city itself, the Radiant Citadel, was created by these these cultures. And so if I wrote it first and had the cultures, uh, the, the writers from those cultures write afterwards, it, it would be a little bit weird. So I waited for them to create their pieces and then I drew influences from them and built the city. But the city is a city of immigrants and New York City is a city of immigrants. And um, there are aspects of New York City um, that started to resonate. And I, I think my subconscious was just sort of working at it you know, in the background, um, the auroral diamond, I, I realized later is, you know, sort of a metaphor for the Statue of Liberty, uh, beckoning those in need. Could argue that also L London might not be a bad uh, example as well for the writing Citadel, though there's a lot of argument that Sigil is influenced by like a Victorian London. So whichever way you want to cut it, maybe that that is accurate. You could say that a, a dystopic, you know, Victorian London is Sigil and then a utopic uh, New York City is already in Citadel and, and those two cities are in conversation with each other and I think actually in a campaign having those two cities exist would be very interesting to have mm. that kind of what, what does that look like in a campaign what, what are the politics and the adventures that happen between those two cities? yeah it's really interesting I, I don't know why but I assume the Radiant Citadel would come first and then you'd briefed writers to to hit the various quarters and the factions that you'd already got set up but but that's not the case at all that's an interesting way to do it 
Yeah, I had I so I worked for multiple months um, on the book before the writers got onboarded. Right. Um, and that's vision docs and that's research and um, that's themes I wanted to hit it, th things I wanted to avoid, limitations um, uh, that I set forth for the writers. But in terms of the the hub city that uh, would link all of these, no, I, I waited until they had put everything together. And I, I kept on thinking about what is this, this linking mechanism because you know, we had agreed as a team, you know, in a conversation with Jeremy Crawford and Wes Snyder, and Wes Snyder was my co-lead, and of course, Jeremy Crawford is one of the two game architects of, of D&D, um, and Jeremy is the one who really ensured the book got greenlit. In conversation with both of them, I had originally come to it with an idea that this would be closer to Ravenloft, in, and I had worked on Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, and so I, I really liked the Domains of Dread and having, you know, these you know several pages devoted to a new domain and i thought that would be a great structure for these new civilizations and they agreed with that but they also said hey the best way to understand a new fantasy culture is to have stories take place adventures take place and so they wanted to make sure that it was an adventure anthology and that made they made a lot of sense to me it, you can you can read a lot of lore, but it, unless you're actually having an adventure in that lore, that lore often like doesn't sink in and you don't really absorb it as the same way that you are in a place, right? You, you, you could read all of, all you want about the city of London from afar, but there's nothing but like actually walking the streets of London to understand what London is like, right? And, and that's the same thing with the adventures. So, you know, one of the things that we had to do in terms of anthology adventures is have a hub or a linking mechanism and I wasn't entirely sure what that would look like. I mean, there was various, various different ideas. And so that's why it came last, because I wanted to be organically connected to what the writers had done. So to take a step back, how, how did you actually get to do this project? Because it sounds like something that's a passion for you. You've been working it for a while. And then you mentioned the magic words greenlit there. So there must have been a time when you were like, you didn't know whether actually you'd get to do this thing or not. So can you talk us a little bit about that process of how you get to be a person who can produce this thing in the first place. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, leaving aside critical role and, and that particular relationship with Dungeons and Dragons, that, that, that has a very specific relationship. And Penny Arcade, um, similarly, right, with, with uh, Acquisitions Inc. I, I believe I'm the first outsider to actually have a book, you know, for, you know, for Dungeons and Dragons. I'm not fully employed by, by Wizards of the Coast. And even Keith... Baker, I don't know how that, I mean, I know there was a contest and he won that contest. I don't know whether, I don't recall whether he got employed by Wizards of Coast at that time or, or how that worked out. Um, I just don't, I don't recall all the details around that, but he, he had won a contest and um, I just went in cold. <laughs> it was, there wasn't a contest that was just, uh, I had an idea. You know, there's a certain advantages. I live 15 minutes from the Watsi offices. I had worked with Wes Snyder on Ravenloft before and was really enjoying that kind of work, uh, but I wanted to do more, right? I wanted to do more specifically in the way I had done for Ravenloft, which is to say I created a, a brand new domain inspired by my ethnic heritage, which is Indian. And that was a powerful moment for me, very deeply emotional moment to be able to write something. I was the first Indian writer to write Indian inspired material or Dungeons and Dragons, and that was that was very exciting and and a little intoxicating to be honest. It was just this powerful feeling of being able to put my own lived experiences in there in some form. So I wanted to do more of that, and I wanted to have 
others do be able to do that, to have that same kind of experience by, by people and by cultures that had never really properly been represented in Dungeons and Dragons before. And so when Raymond Law finished, you know, the pandemic was in full swing. Uh, my full job, time job is director of operations for a nonprofit called the Shanti Bowman Children's Project. In fact, we, we, just, uh, we just got a UK chapter, so maybe I'll be over <laughs> your, your neck in the woods in the, in the, in the near future. I, I normally fly back and forth between India and I normally travel a lot, but I was grounded and I wasn't going anywhere. And I thought, hey, if I'm gonna do this, if I'm gonna make this dream come true, it's now or never. I knew Jeremy also for, for, for a few years and we were friends as well. And both Wes and Jeremy deeply respected my work in the nonprofit field. Um, I think because um, I was a high level professional that managed you know, dozens of teams and hundreds of people and dealt with complex situations. They had, a, they had an inherent trust of my ability to manage a major project like this. And that of course I would have a co-lead in Wes who is a full-time uh, you know, employee. He's a senior game designer at Wizards of the Coast. So I put together some materials um, and I, I sent it across to them and I asked for a meeting and they get the chance to read through it in advance of the meeting. And then in the meeting, we, we talked and at that very first meeting, they agreed. Uh, it wasn't like we had a series of 20 meetings. It was my presentation of why this book should exist and what we could do with it, um, a discussion about that, and then a greenlit in that, that that very first meeting. They both, as I said, they both knew me very well, and they had a lot of trust in my ability to get this done and to make sure that the project does survive. Because I think Ray Winninger has mentioned a few times, for every book that you see, there's probably several that have never made it to fruition and, and then have been shelved. And, and I know I know for a fact that is true because I've seen or I've heard through the grapevine of, of a few. So I had a, I had a sense that this was, if I couldn't execute, this book would never exist. And um, I needed to push it hard. And they trusted me on that. Was there any uh, collective intake of breath when they saw, or I don't know how early they saw, your list of contributors, the adventure writers? Because is it fair to say there's quite a few new names for the industry in there? Yeah, it was great in that Wes gave me an enormous amount of creative control. I, I, I think I had really incredible level of control and level of, you know, oversight and things. Um, you know, Wes was my co-lead, so there, I was always checking with him. But he did, in many ways, you know, defer to me on a lot of decisions, including the writer's list. Um, mm. We would vet them simultaneously. I would do the first round and I'd say, here's, here's who I want to bring in. And then he would look at their writing samples and look at their work and, and kind of like what their backgrounds were. And, and he would, you know, kind of confer with me and we talked through it. But he never vetoed any choices I made and he was 100% on board. And, and that was really exciting. Yeah, it, it was just a sort of a dream project. I, I mean, even even the artists, right? One of my goals was to have more pe more people of color as artists on this book than any other D&D book. I'd, I, a part of me had hoped that we could make 100%, but it just it didn't work out for a few reasons. You know, a lot of the a lot of the writer, a lot of the artists we had reached out to just couldn't make it within the time commitment, or they were double booked, or some other thing like that. But we had more people of color working on this than any other D&D book, and and it really is reflecting the art. The art is vibrantly alive, full of color, and that represents, you know, I think in a lot of ways the the vibrant art and colorfulness of. Latin America, African art, uh, Indian art, um, you know, which are, which have a lot of, you know, it's just brighter and I think just a full spectrum of color. And it, and it is very unique, I think, in that way from a lot of other D&D books. I think D&D books have had some, some great art in the past, but I, but I stand by this as having some really unique pieces and um, 
gorgeous art. And so that was part of that list of, of artists work came from me. Mm. And I had done a lot of research and said, hey, here's, what, here's some new talent I think that we should look at. And here's who I think would work out well. Even even both of the cover artists are women of color, which I think is also a first in D&D's history. I, I think in so many ways, this book has a lot of firsts. Yeah, I think, I think it was even Fong, was it, who did um, the, the standard cover? Yep. I saw a little picture from her on Twitter that like super delighted holding a book like that, and I've seen that from many of the writers as well. I think it's um, it's not just a hopeful book or a hope punk as you call it, and colourful and bright and everything. I think everybody that I've noticed that's involved in the project seems like super excited to be involved in the project as well. It just feels like uh, all the way through it, there's just a through line of everybody really excited about this thing, and um, it's all just colourful and bright and optimistic. Dare I say? Yeah, I, there was a strong sense of camaraderie and. Also a sense that we were in it together and we had to put in our best because there was a lot of people who wished they could have had this shot and we we had the shot, right? And so we owed it to, I think, everybody in the D&D community to do our very best because we were in a very unique position. And, and particularly, I think, for other people of color who have always dreamt to see themselves in this book we felt like we we owed it to them. I was at um, San Diego Comic-Con just a couple days ago, and um, there was a, a Filipina influencer and an engineer who flew in from Tokyo versus San Diego Comic-Con, and she was just there for, for a panel and to do, you know, just kind of check out the con. Um, she'd given up a career in medicine, just made some really tough decisions in her own life uh, to pursue a career in games against parental disapproval and all of the nine yards, right? You know, just a really challenging thing. And she looks at the book and her eyes just go wide and just her face is filled with emotion as she pages through it and sees the section that is inspired by the Philippines. And she just looks at me and says, I wish this book had existed when I was a little girl. And uh, I was deeply moved and uh, it, it hit me very hard when she, when, when she said that. So, I think what you see in terms of the excitement is we were all in it pretty hard and it was it was a tough tough challenging journey um you know I think almost you know the book took two years um the writers were working on this because there's a lot of editing and pre and so on and so forth um you know pre pre-production and and post-production and so on and so forth but the writers in are in it for about a year um or a little bit less and so many, so many milestones and so many obstacles and challenges. And, um, but I, I'd really built in a system that would create constant conversation and dialogue between the writers. They would do co-working sessions. They had peer review draft sessions and so on and so forth. Because otherwise, I having written for, for RPGs before, I, I'd seen a lot of it was, you're very siloed. Um, you're kind of lonely. You're, you're given your assignment and kind of told to, to go in your hole and come back in, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever, really quick turnaround time often for, for RPG writing too, which is really challenging. And, and produce your thing. And you're, you're never talking to anybody except maybe your lead for a little bit. And, and I, I just, I, I understand why that exists, but I don't like that. Um, and that's not how I run my organization. I, I believe in really robust communication. So I built that and I built a greater lead, lead time and, and Wizards of Coast was agreeable to it. So I think what you see is that, that camaraderie um, and that love, that, that passion for it. Mm, for sure. So uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask, which I've seen somebody else um, mention, so I wanted to get your thoughts on it, is that uh, it doesn't necessarily say for each adventure which culture uh, inspired the adventure, if you know what I mean. 
and I can see I can see sort of two angles from this. And one is someone reads the adventure and goes, "Cool, I wish I wish want to know more about that, so I wish I knew where it was from." Almost. And then another part of it is that it's it's not a um, you know a, a faithful representation of that culture. It's just an inspiration for a fancy game. So where do you kind of sit on how much signal to give about where it comes from and that sort of thing? Yeah, you know the. It's not in the books, but the, the writers themselves have done their own interviews and have talked about it. And I think that's the right place, you know, for it. I never wanted this to be a one-for-one. One. I didn't want this to be like fantasy Mexico or, you know, fantasy Philippines. Um, I wanted us to take inspiration from those places, but also give the writers enough creative liberty to stray as far as they wanted from it. And and there are a couple pieces that are influenced by a couple different cultures, you know, um, in, you know, in West Africa or, you know, in, in the Caribbean and so on. It's not not nailed to one location. Um, you know, Wages of Vice, it takes place, takes some Caribbean influences, but also some New Orleans influences. So it, it is important to, to understand at, at the end of the day, it's still fantasy. Mm-hmm. And the writers are pulling from their cultural heritage, but also maybe the lived experiences, right? So, you know, the, the, the writer who worked in the Caribbean on Wages of Vice, she's got family from the Caribbean, but also lived and as experiences in the New Orleans and, and both of those, um, her experiences as a black New Orleans is very influential to this as is the Caribbean. And that makes a lot more sense to me. I, I don't want to be like, well, this is one for one, go look for it there. Um, I just want to, I hope people will feel that inspiration, maybe be curious to do more digging on their own, but not to give them, Hey, this is what you have to be. You have to be like this. It has to be like that. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I guess one of the things people have talked about is that, and I, when I look at source books, I prefer them to be smaller almost, or to have like give you the inspiration and then you kind of build from it rather than having exhaustive detail sort of thing. So another thing people have talked about is that for a lot of the adventures, you kind of get a page worth of setting to kind of set it up and maybe two. Yeah. Uh, and and some people are saying like that's not enough. Where's the rest of it? I need more. Where's all my log and that kind of thing. Uh, but I'm I'm quite killed. So there's the I guess. Like, is there more to come on that? Is it, are you planning more expansions, or is yeah, you know, is what you get enough just to give you that flavor? And like, you want people to build their own stories as well. Yeah, you know, I, I think there are multiple answers to that. The first one, and the easiest one, is there's a DM scale product called Journeys Beyond the Radiance Citadel, and that was written by seven of the writers that worked on the book, and they they expanded just their section. So you can you can easily find more setting material um, in this DM scale product. Um, I think it's doing really well. I think it's like number one or number two in the DM scale. It's like really up there. So it's, it'll be pretty easy to find. It's, it's journeys beyond the radius at all. That's the first answer. The second answer is I am generally w- with you in that. I believe that, you know, unless you're Tolkien and you're going to write the Similarian, you are, you know, tons of lore can be, it's, it's maybe more a fitting for a novel than it is for a game. How much of that lore is really going to get used are you, is it going to get in the way of your role play? And more importantly, is it going to get in the way of your own imagination, right? I, I, I don't want to prescribe everything for you. I often find, I guess I'm, I'm sort of a little bit of like the Steve Jobs philosophy of like, less is more in that like, he gives you the iPhone, here's the experience he wants you to have with this thing. And he doesn't give you a million options with it. Like you've got your set of options and then you can do whatever. But it's, I prefer people to like not have overloaded with tons and tons of material and then find themselves like buried in and be like, oh, let me go find that source book for where, where this is described about this way. I'm like, no, riff off of it, you know, build off of it, create from there. You know, we've given you the blueprint, build out from there. That, that all said, um, I would love to see 
a campaign book around you know around, around the rain and all the cultures and you know that maybe that's a possibility down the road it is um in some ways i mean historically or classically it's almost an odd decision from Watsi because adventure anthologies are not that common not really you know the big hardback book the big setting campaign thing for forgotten realms across multiple editions or Eberron or Dragonlance or any of those things. Dragonlance, maybe not. That was mostly founded on its adventures. But adventures at all have been a thing that Wizards have done through 5th edition through fairly big, chunky, hardback books. But adventure anthologies, I think, were Candlekeep. That was anthology. But most of them have been a 1 to 15 sort of straight run through campaign. Radiant Citadel is not that, is it? No. I mean, it could be, for sure. It's structurally... I feel like a an enterprising DM could easily link those adventures into a long-term campaign using, you know, the speakers of the ancestors, which were the governing body of the Radiant Citadel, or the Dawn Incarnates, or or any other, you know, key faction or or individual in the Radiant Citadel as a linking mechanism to build out a fully flushed uh, fleshed out adventure from first level through, you know, you would end up at 15th level at the end of the last adventure. Um, and I think that is, that's viable. Um, and I believe that's possible. However, it was meant to serve as an adventure uh, anthology. And so we do want DMs to be able to say, hey, I need a great, you know, fifth level adventure to slot between, um, you know, this, this one and this one. And what do I have here? And how can I add that to my own campaign? Or how can I, you know, round out the Forgotten Realms or, or Kryn or, um, you know, Greyhawk or, you know, wherever you might be with um, a new location, because the Gazetteer would give you the locations, the Gazetteers at the end of each adventure would give you a new location and have a new adventure to come along with it. So it was supposed to serve multiple different uh, reasons and, and, and motivations, which is enormously challenging as a design question. Like, I, I don't know if, if your listeners or people understand how complicated that is as a design decision it is like we have to try to do three or four different things and do them well simultaneously you know a campaign book is just you're going to run a campaign book from you know from first to you know 15th level or or uh, a setting book will just have me mostly new new settings and it's going to be um you know some like a couple new subclasses and, and and its purpose is generally one one to two things right this has got sort of like three or four different kind of purposes simultaneously. And that's really tricky. And I spent a lot of time, Wes and I spent a lot of time thinking about how to thread that needle. Do you find that challenge more interesting than, for example, writing for Ravenloft? Is that, did you have like a preference or are they kind of just two different things you like doing both of? I, I mean, there will be, there has never been an experience like leading Journeys to the Radiant Set at all. It was the most creative, fulfilling, experience of my life and i will always cherish it i mean i loved working on ravenloft and that was very deeply meaningful to me especially writing for domain but having the lead position and having this entire book and doing what we did with it was certainly the most fulfilling uh gaming related you know experience i've ever had yeah it sounds like it's more important to to you guys than just a collection of adventures yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely believe that. Um, and I, I also think it, it is going to to reflect that um, over time. You know, it's 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 funny in that we have Spelljammer coming in, in a few weeks and, you know, 
Spelljammer, I don't remember what last edition it was in. I feel like it's second. Second. Don't yeah. It, yeah, it didn't yeah. make it, it didn't make an appearance in third, right? No. Nope. So it, it's 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 become a meme in some ways, and that like a lot of people clamoring for it never played the original. <laughs> it just sort of <laughs> it, it sort of felt like a running joke that became became very very seriously and became now a driving force and, and people are clamoring for it that, that have never played for it, played it, right? But I think Spelljammer there, there's a couple of, um, there's a book that I think it's called Slaying the Dragon that just came out. I, I don't know if you are familiar yep, with it, but I am, um, yeah, yeah. Um, it uh, apparently, I mean, I think this is not a surprise. Spelljammer didn't do really well uh, no. during its time, uh, <laughs> and, and, and nor did Planescape really, right? You not know, really. so a lot of these, a lot of these properties that people are clamoring for were, were not terribly popular in its time. In, in many ways were pretty slagged during its time during like oh, this is really messy and this is a lot of these things are broken and so on and so forth but it, it continued to pick up cultural relevant over time i think you're going to see the same thing with radiance i think you're, it's gonna it's um you know thankfully the reviews have been very positive we have not gotten the kind of backlash that um spelljammer or planescape got but i do think um it will continue to pick, pick up steam as people read it and reread it because there are so many subtleties and nuances um, that folks will understand at at a reread. And if you if you want to take it at a superficial level or surface level, great. You're going to have fun adventures. You want to read more deeply and read it, you know, second or third time. You're going to be like, oh wow, that's what's actually going on. This is what this is speaking about. And I think it is going to to really ignite a lot of people's imagination. And I think have a lot of legs uh, over time. But it's. It's one of those things that because it's brand new, I, I I find that people, I think almost with most things that are new, it's it's a struggle, right? You know, that's why most movie studios are rehashing old properties again and again and again and again, right? Every TV show, every TV show seems like a reboot, you know? D&D continues to, to mine old properties and, and is very skittish about new ideas. This is the first, uh, I think, new, completely new IP for Dungeons and Dragons in fifth edition. Mm. You know, there's 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 nothing drawn from any existing source in Journey to the Radiant Citadel, um, and that's huge for 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 Five E being around for for the many years that it has been. I mean, discounting obviously Magic tie-ins and and Penny Arcade tie-ins and Critical Role tie-ins. This yeah. is the first brand new, and even those are not brand new, right? Those are tie-ins from existing properties. Um, yeah. So this is the first brand new IP for 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 D and D, and that shows you how how challenging it is to try something new. But I think the power of as people digest it and think about it over time, the impact it will have. I was going to ask about individual adventures as well, the scenarios, because I've only seen reports. I've not read the book myself, uh, full disclosure, but I'm excited by the reports I've had that the adventures themselves take on plots and schemes within them that aren't what you would consider to be a a dragon in a dungeon. (laughs) So you've always got to have some of that, I guess. But it's good to see that there's that the the kind of the color palette for what you can do and still call it an adventure seems to be much broader. There's some southern gothic horror in there, is there? Yeah. There's some yeah. murder mystery stuff. I mean, these things have right. always been possible in D and D, but I think D and D's detractors would always say, "Oh, you're always standing outside a door waiting to burst in on some orcs, aren't you?" Yeah. And that's not what's happening in in Radiant Sister, right? No, no. I mean, you can definitely slay a dragon if you want to. Cool. Uh, though in the adventure that, that that appears in, I would say that is not the preferred solution to the adventure, but it's very much possible. Some, similarly, there are definitely dungeons to crawl and to, to kill things, but I would say that 
um, the core themes of the adventure and the struggles and challenges are often pretty complex and nuanced and different than what you would expect out of a D&D adventure. And, and I just think it shows that the power of Dungeons and Dragons that like, it, it feels like a paucity of imagination, a limitation of us to think this is all that D&D can be. And when D&D's retractors say these things, I'm like, yeah, may, maybe you're seeing that from old school stuff that has been around that, that I love, but but hadn't really like, you know, I think when things, something sells well, people continue to try that one thing, right? It's like, great, okay, I get why that has been done again, again and again, because it's selling well, right? I, and I, and I, I have a passion for that as well, but we haven't explored the full range and depth of what Dungeons and Dragons can do. And I think this book really tries to, to move in that direction. Mm. Well, I was just gonna skip back to the conversation we were just having in terms of trying something new and um, the approach, because part of it, I'm wondering whether that's because we've just got a different audience now for D&D, whereas those of us of a certain age perhaps grew up on, on fantasy about Lord of the Rings. And I'm sure Baz will tell you that his kids now think fantasy is something like Rick and Morty or Adventure yeah. Time or something. Like, or like our headspace of what fantasy is is just completely different than it used to be, say, 30 years ago, for example. Uh, and looking at the cover of uh, Radiant Citadel, for example, it just looks like it looks more like a cartoon almost, and not in a pejorative way at all, but in a, that kind of like vibrant, colourful thing we're talking about. Is it perhaps got more chance of success now, even though it's a different type of thing? Because a lot of the people who are playing D and D now are just different sorts of people than perhaps they were when Gygax was around, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, I think. First of all, I think the writers that are creating fantasy material come from different backgrounds than now than, than they did back in Tolkien's time. There was, you know, Tolkien and then a bunch of, um, you know, no, no detraction to them, but like, you know, people who ripped off of Tolkien and, and kind of followed in his footsteps. And there's a lot of stories that were inspired in, in the Lord of the Rings kind of tradition. But now you're getting a whole breadth and width of, uh, of stories that are just coming from you know, a lot more women, uh, a lot more people of color, and, and they are, they're just, ex they're expanding their imaginations to just a bunch of different demands. And I think particularly millennials and, and Gen Z um, are really hungry for that. Um, and they are coming to D&D for the first time. A lot of them are, have only played 5e, right? I, I'm 47. I played Redbox was my first one, you know, Red, Redbox Basic, um, you know, was, was, was when I first started playing D&D. So I've been doing it for a long time. But the the audience today has just skews younger and it skews, um, you know, Watsy Wizards of the Coast have put out information. I don't know, I don't think they put any on like ethnic breakdown of their players, but they, they've, they've shown um, gender breakdown. And, and I think almost 40% of all D&D players currently are women. Um, and that number doubled in the last like five, six years. I mean, it was a huge jump in the last uh, several years. And I think also that partially that's streaming, right? Streaming has influenced mm -hmm. that as well. Yeah. So their ex their expectations are just very different. Like they're not held and bound to the traditions and, and kind of um, themes and stories that, you know, you and I were. Um, and I think sometimes gamers, we think of ourselves as like creative and willing to take risks and um you know creativity is like the foundation of gaming and yet strangely gamers are often scared <laughs> to move creatively away from very very 
very you know the, you know basic themes that they they're so they grew up with, and that's a weird paradox for me. I'm like this whole game is about imagination. It is about trying new things and being weird things and and exploring new realms, and yet we still hone in on just a few core themes again and again and again. The things often that we grew up right you know with Lord of the Rings or or, or any of those you know stories that. that were really influential to us in our in our youth, but the new generation of gamers didn't grow up with that, or not in the same way. And their perceptions and their loves and desires from uh, gaming are vastly different. And I do think Journeys to the Radiant Citadel will speak pretty deeply and powerfully to um, that younger generation of millennials and and Gen um, Gen Z. Yeah, I think there's a, I can't remember the exact statistic, but I'm pretty sure that most Call of Cthulhu players in Japan are women aged between 17 and 35. It's like definitely yeah. over 50%. It's just a different... Yeah, I mean, you, you can look at Twitter sometimes and think that the, the majority of role players are middle-aged white guys, but they probably need to get a grip on the fact that <laughs> they're in the minority <laughs> these days. You know? Yeah, yeah. And yet, unfortunately... You know, when you think about reviewers are still dominated by, you know, middle-aged white men, and... Um, that can be a challenge for trying to introduce new new material because if all of your reviewers are from a specific you know category, um, they're going to have their own biases, right? They're going to have their own kind of like what they love and what they want. I, I, I read this one bit where they're like somebody wrote like, "I love the adventures, I love I love the ethnic colonies, blah blah blah," but I didn't like Radiant Citadel because it didn't have ethereal plain lore in it uh, that I wanted, and I was like. Actually, they said it wasn't a good book because of that. And I was like, wow. Okay, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> you, you said you like everything about the book, except that it doesn't have something that you're specifically looking for in the book. And I, I can't do that for you. I don't know what to say about that, right? That's a very weird kind of thing. And I think what I've noticed is some, some of the reviewers have been struggling about being able to take a step back and go, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge this based on the objective good qualities of this book as opposed to like my own biases and wants from the mm. book um and I, I do wish that we had more women reviewers i do wish we had more um people of color reviewers um and th that their absence does have an impact on how we shape our views on on games because in some ways it's a gate right it's a gate that it's kept closed if if all reviewers are from a one specific category very hard to have uh, anything that falls outside of that category get the same kind of like treatment um, and respect um, mm -hmm. that, that that you know that those reviewers might want. Yeah, if you're looking for a reviewer, I can highly recommend uh, Justin Alexander, who's a good friend of the show. He's, he works for Atlas Games. He's been doing um, a walkthrough of the adventures in Radiant Citadel. Yeah. So it's a bit worse and all, but I would, I would definitely recommend going look at it because he's and his philosophy on reviews is saying what he likes or doesn't like and why. So that you know, like you know, you've got like a, it's like, I, I wanted more of this or less of this or whatever. But like he's just giving you a quality of like, even if you hated something, you can read one of his reviews and think I quite like that because all the things you say you don't, you know, you want different yeah. uh, are the things I want in mind. So he's been doing that thread on Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I've been reading parts of it and I, I've enjoyed it. I have some disagreements with him on things, or I'm like, I think you're misunderstanding that point, but that's okay. <laughs> but but he's a smart guy and his I, I appreciate his take and he's been I think generally positive and complimentary about the book and I, I appreciate that as mm. well yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, and Justin will absolutely come at this with good faith and I and I can imagine that you you probably had to steal yourselves as a as a creative group 
against the fact that there's going to be a small, hopefully, demographic who are just not going to like this book on site yeah. for what it represents or whatever. Yeah. Hopefully that's not too big a demographic, but has there been any ridiculous pushbacks that you've found from the community? Yeah, I mean, no, not, not in any major way. There's been Good. small efforts, you know, and, and my philosophy is to, like, live and let live. I, I don't engage with them at all. I don't try to change anybody's mind that is, you know, going to, to, to not to hate it because they don't like that brown and black people wrote it, right? And, and there, there is a percentage of that who have kind of bent over backwards to, to try to rationalize the racism, but I, I'm like, <laughs> you know, go with God, um, I, live your best life. I don't particularly, I don't wanna, I don't wanna engage with them and I don't want to, I don't wanna fight with them. I don't wanna waste my energy with them and I don't think it's, it's valuable to me. I, I'd rather, and it's just, it's not in keeping with my theme of trying to, you know, be, be positive about the book and putting the work in there. I have certainly seen some really strange takes of like, I mean, some of them are, are kind of amusing in that like, I think the funniest take was like, and this is a team that a few times um, they're like, oh, you know, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, my, my adventuring party is gonna go, you know, raid the Radiant Citadel and destroy it and, and, and you know, overthrow it and conquer it. And they're like talking about this impressively because, you know, they hate the black and they wanna, I guess, kill all the brown people or whatever. Um, and I'm like, oh man, that's a lot of energy. Like you're gonna buy the book that you hate and then run, run an adventure with your group over a thing that you hate. Like that is like some wild. Like that's just wild to me. Like I'm like, you do what you want to do. Like the, the words of the, the text in the book is not changing. Like it doesn't really matter what hap what you do in your gaming table. That book continues to exist in its form. Uh, but you know if that makes you happy, great. Uh, I I do I do think that they need. Um, more healthy outlets, um, and probably, um, you know, maybe a recontextualizing about how they want to live their lives, because that seems like a lot of hate <laughs> and anger to, to focus in your life. And in the meantime, thanks for the money. <laughs> <laughs> well, Wizards of the Coast makes you for your money. I don't get wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're happy to take it. <laughs> so, so I'll lead you back into more hopeful things then. So you, you've mentioned that uh, obviously, a lot of great creative people have got to work on this project, and that there was a another cohort of people who, who then wanted to work on it. Do you think this is because wizards have come under some kind of pushback occasionally about their hiring practices or who they've got on board and that kind of thing? Do you think from the future now, wizards are going to see more of people of color, different backgrounds, genders, all the rest of it? Is that going to be more a feature in, in future products? Do you think? And, and have you got opportunity to perhaps push forward more things? Are, are you looking at more products? Yeah, you know, as a first example, Justice Armin Arman, um, who's a, a Persian writer on just um, Journey to the Rain of Citadel, his, it was his first D&D book. Um, it, it launched their career with D&D. &D. Um, they have now written on Spelljammer. So they got two books back to back coming out, which is pretty exciting for them. They're kind of loving it. And then they have a third book that hasn't been announced that they wrote as a freelancer. So they did three books as a freelancer, and then they got hired as a senior game designer at Wizards of the Coast. So I think they're the first person of color to be a senior game designer at Wizards of the Coast, which, um, which was launched from this book. I can't say the names yet because I haven't officially announced it for some reason or the other. I and mean, maybe it's just, it's just too far out. But two of the writers on Journey to the Rain and Citadel worked on Dragonlance. Um, and so, the, and a third one was invited to, but uh, she just couldn't, um, she couldn't, she didn't have the, she was, she's the narrative director over at uh, Deck Nine, uh, the, the, the video game company that does the Life is Strange series. Um, she just was too booked up. And so she, she turned down that offer. But 
that, that's a that's a you know short way of saying that in the short term, certainly uh, I have seen actions by Wizards of the Coast and the D and D design team to further people of color involvement their their involvement in D and D books and for, for future products. I'm very much hopeful that they will create more books in this line. Jeremy Crawford has told me that he sees this as not the last, but the first um, of what is to come. So uh, I am I am hopeful whether I'm leading it or or not is kind of irrelevant to me. I, I sometimes see like old schoolers who are just right, like angry that they're not invited to a new product that like they worked on like 20, 30 years ago. And I'm like, you know, that product was great 20, 30 years ago, but don't you want to inspire the next generation of writers to take up your work and, and do something new with it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe I'll have a different perspective 20 years from now and be like, yeah, it's shaking my cane or whatever. Be like, I, w- <laughs> I want to work on that Radiant Citadel book. Why didn't you guys invite me? But I, I feel like right now, um, as long as it's in the hands of, you know, a person of color as, as like a lead or co-lead on it, um, and they're doing right by it, um, I'm more than happy to sit on the sidelines. I would love to be invited, um, you know, to, to write for it, or if, if the opportunity presents itself to co-lead. Um, it's a little hard um, with my full-time job, and my full-time job is not changing. I love, I love what I do for a profession. Um, it's, it's really my calling, but I really do have a strong passion for creative outlets. And uh, I am working on a couple of other things I can't really talk about right now, but, um, you know, they're interesting and kind of fun. Um, and I, I've got a couple of big projects on in the horizon that, We'll see how they come together. We'll have a word with Wizards for you. We know a couple of people. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it, that that people can be, and I think rightly so as a creator, you you can be, you can succumb to territorialism. Well, this is my thing, and I'd like to, you know, keep my finger in that pie. But when you're writing scenarios and campaign books and the rest of it, you're you're clearly you're doing something that you have to give away to your audience because and when your book hits tables all around the world from that moment on there's nothing you can do you have to let it go because they're going to do some crazy stuff with your work with your writer's works it's not going to probably work out the way that your writers envisage it would and it must be enormously good to get feedback from your players to see what happens with your work when it's out there in the wild yeah, I, I think so, and that's that's sort of my philosophy too. I think particularly when you're when you're doing work for hire, you you kind of you, that you, it comes with the territory. Once you've handed in that and you got your payment, that that work is owned by the company, good or for bad. I, I you know we could have a longer discussion about royalties and how that would be better and so on and so forth. They're different things, um, and I, I do wish there were a little bit you know structure. There's some different structural um, you know systems around that, but in terms of like leading old properties, I, I think this is a larger kind of existential question the world is facing in that like, you know, you know, we're struggling with so many problematic systems in the world, you know, because the people who've got power don't want to let go of that power <laughs> and they want to hold on to it till their very dying breath. And in some ways, I think of that a little bit with IPs, like you created that great you did sell it, you decided to agree to like that contract. Maybe you should just encourage the next generation of writers that come in your footsteps and don't have your, you know, background and your reputation and all, all the accolades you've gotten and all the work that you've gotten. Maybe you can inspire them and encourage them forward rather than, you know, hold on to it with your death grip um, and, and not let go. Um, and so 
that that's just my perspective. And I admit, maybe that will change. Like maybe I'll <laughs> you'll find me in like 20, 30 years being like, get off my lawn. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but uh, but I'm hopeful that, you know, that my perspective will be to be very much to encourage. And I think I, I've done a lot of mentoring of people of color. It is very important to me. I, I genuinely believe in passing on the torch to others. I believe others that are younger than me and smarter than me will come up with ideas that I never thought about. Um, and I want to encourage that, not squelch that flame. I don't want to like stifle their energy by sitting on top of the product and being like, well, that's not how I would do the radiance of the ball. You can only be this way. Like, I want them to be like, yo, I've got a better idea. Let me take this and like, you know, go with it. And, and that's, that's, what I, that's what I hope for most. I think there is a thing in fandom communities generally that people want to know it and own it. And like, it's kind of, you get geek cred for who knows the most about a particular IP or something, or, you know. Uh, people can get too possessive. I, I shared something on Twitter earlier today, actually. It's um, from someone else, but it's an early letter that uh, Gary Gygax wrote to back in the day when you had to like manually type out letters on a typewriter and put them in the post to people. Uh, and he responded to someone who was saying, he was trying to get like that narrow focus again. And he was saying, like, one of the reasons I like playing in Dave Arneson's campaign is that it's completely different than mine and the rules are different. I don't know how he's going to treat monsters. Like the person who, or people who wrote D&D in the first place had in mind that it should diverge. And he even says, I think, words to the effect in the letter of his job is to create divergence. And if at any point everything's uh, narrow and everybody agrees, then that's failed. He doesn't want that. That's not what D&D is. It should be going wider and broader and deeper and all the other dimensions as well. So... I guess that's the ultimate answer to people who still want to keep things the same is that that's not what the original creator had in mind. So now maybe rethink your worldview. Yeah, I, I, I think this game is fundamentally a, a, a game of imagination and creativity. And if we are all approaching it exactly identically and our, our creative paths are exactly identical with each other, we have somehow lost our way. We are, we are fundamentally doing something wrong. Your game of, with with Journeys for the Radiant Citadel should be different from mine, and it should be different from the next person. And maybe we can, you know, all get around the campfire and kind of share stories about, you know, weird weird stories that took place in the Radiant Citadel. And I I will be amazed. I would just love to hear it. I'll be a fly on the wall listening to those stories and be like, that is awesome. I had never thought about that, but that is the coolest damn thing. And um, that is what I hope for. And you've deliberately left space in the Radiant Citadel stuff as well with the extra dimensions, yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. You know that that is for multiple reasons, but most of all for players and DMs to insert their um, their creativity and, and their imagination and their worlds and their stories in there. Um, they can link up the new cultures and they can link in whatever cultures they want, whatever backgrounds. They can fill in the spaces that they want. Um, the framework and the themes of the Raiders Citadel are pretty strong, um, but there's lo lots of opportunities to fill in that out with other things. And so. Yeah, I, I think I, that is really what I wanted to do. I, I, I am a strong believer that like, you know, the more words that fill up the page, the more like your imagination gets to shrink as the reader. Like, well, everything has been filled in here. So what do I add? Like, we're, we're, I can't riff off of this because I find myself, particularly when I'm like watching a good TV show that like gives me just enough but not more. And I think here's a perfect example is maybe season one of True Detective. Like so much weird things are going on in, in, in the season one of True Detective, but so much is left unanswered. It's just like, you, you maybe, maybe not. Is this what's actually happening here? And my imagination was just like fireworks, like filling in all the blanks in, in, in season one of True Detective. 
And there's so many stories like that um, where there's just a launching pan of whatever is possible there. The more the more lore you add, I think, um, the more it stifles. And I, and I, you know, I hope I'm not going to make enemies on this, but like I love Star Wars, but also, man, the the more we add to the lore of Star Wars, the less I start to love it. Um, yeah. And the more it feels contradictory with each other, it's just like. I am sorry, but like this stopped making sense. Like these pieces do not fit together anymore. And and I can see fans like trying to bend over backwards to like fit all of these things, how they got together. And I'm like, you do you, but it doesn't work for me anymore. Right. I, I loved it much more when it was just sort of a lot of stuff was mysterious. A lot of stuff was weird. Like the force was cool before what midichlorians. Midi yeah, midichlorians, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> I definitely did not need that piece of lore for the force. Right. Yeah, I mean, just... Just a little bit of uh, Obi Wan sat in his little mud hut telling Luke about the Clone Wars and his father was the best pilot ever and all this kind of, like that story that I think we all had when we first said that in our head was brilliant, and then watching a film about it is kind of like oh, oh, yeah, that's, that's just terrible. Film. Like, <laughs> oh my god! Like my imagination for the that's a, that's a perfect example. My imagination for the Clone Wars was so vastly different mm -hmm. from from the film version of it, and I will say. I really did not like the film version of it. Like it did not. I was like, "You, have, my imagination has disappeared. Right? It, it's just been killed." Yeah, and, and it, it has actually squelched my love for first hours. This always tends to happen, doesn't it? I mean, you said it yourself when you said about season one of True Detective. Well, I mean, really, what we're saying is the only season of True Detective. <laughs> people have to know where to stop sometimes. Yeah, and to bring it back to Radiant you. Citadel, to, to sort of loop back to the real to the conversation is, it's new and it's expansive yeah. and there's spaces in it. It's not just more shoveled on top of an yeah. accretion of lore on top of, on top of, on top of. Because yeah. that could just be intimidating and overwhelming and just it's the exact opposite from what you want from sitting down to play a role-playing game that evening. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you can, as a first-time player, like, how do you enter the world of, like, Dragonlance? Like, I, I Oof, my imagination was sparked so heavily by the, the first novels, like I think many of us were. Um, mm. But, like, now it's, like, 40, 50 no novels and, uh, you know, a bunch of RPG books. And I, I have lost track of any anything around the lore. And, like, I have deep respect for, for uh, you know, Margaret Weiss and, and Hickman and what they created. But also, uh, I wonder if maybe kind of like, you know, just kind of set the lore, stop the lore, and maybe you could just run adventures in there, right? Maybe some stories from different characters in there. Um, I just, I don't think it, there's just too much lore now. And I, I, I don't know how you would approach that uh, easily as a first time. And, and so, if, yeah, if you get new people into the hobby and all the rest of it, it's how accessible something is. 100%. If, you, if you're putting hundreds of pages in front of them, that's just not the way to do it, is it? Like, show, don't tell, I think, is the way we talk about it. And that's one of the things I like about Radiant Citadel, is that it's like you learn by doing the adventures, right? That's yeah. how it works. Yeah, brilliant. So are you actually playing any games or doing anything yourself at the minute? Or is it just, I know you've got a, a very worthy organization you're going to head back off to and need to work for again very shortly. Yeah. But do, do you get a chance to enjoy games yourself? Uh, I, I haven't. I, I play one shots basically these days. I just don't have time for long campaigns. It's, it's pretty funny. My, my wife, uh, Whitney Strix-Balfon, is um, she's a narrative director for a AAA uh, Dungeons and Dragons video game that is in production. It's in like year three of probably six, seven years <laughs> cycle that video games take forever to make, right? Um, and she's going to jump in a game um, with Justice uh, Ramin Aman and um, his wife, Sam, and um, bunch of others and 
they're doing session zero this Saturday and I'm leaving for India uh, a couple days after. So I might drop by to watch session zero and I've been like, hey, can I play like a like a secondary character that kind of like comes in and out because I travel so much. It's like, I can't actually make all of the sessions, but um, I hope to be part of that campaign in some very reduced capacity, but it's really the easiest for me as one shots. It's just hard to commit to a larger campaign at, at this stage. And it's, it's the wild thing of like adulthood. It's like, you know, when you're, when you're younger, you're like a teen or early twenties, you just like, you know, you, you got no money and, and nothing and you're just like trying to make things work. And, but you have lots of time to game and you have these long, crazy campaigns and you, just, you love it. And then you're like, wow, when I'm older and I have a lot more things, it'll even be cooler. It's like, no, actually, that's not how it works. When you get older, uh, time just disappears from you. You might have resources, but you don't have time anymore. Um, and your commitments just become you know, escalating. And so jumping in games is like a rare pleasure. for me. Yeah, we're lamenting about that a lot. Maybe you could have some kind of like magician character who's got... Um an orb or like an eye of Sauron kind of thing upon it. You can just zoom into sessions to have you. Exactly. Yeah, one way of doing it. Cool. Uh, so we're nearly up on time. Just, do you actually want to mention your other charitable work that you do while you're here? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. I'm the director of operations for the Shanti Bevan Shorens Project. There is a Netflix documentary series called Daughters of Destiny. It's out on Netflix um, and it came out in 2017 and it kind of followed us for seven years. Um, so it gives you good insight into our work, but we are a education and poverty alleviation program. You know, they're designed to uplift children from the poorest segments uh, and the most discriminated sections, segments of Indian population and give them a, a top quality education from the age of three and a half, four years old until they graduate from high school. Then we help them, um, you know, get into college in India or abroad and give them partial or full scholarships, depending on, you know, their need uh, or help them get scholarships at the university. And um, this is our 25th anniversary, so it's a pretty exciting time. We've had a number of, you know, classes graduate and, and go into the workforce and they've gone from extreme poverty to working at, um, you know, firms like Amazon or, or Mercedes-Benz or uh, you know, JP Morgan, so on. And, and it's been a pretty exciting. It's just transformed our lives deeply. A UK chapter based in London just started a couple months ago, and that's been exciting. Um, uh, but it's, it's deeply meaningful work. It, it is incredibly impactful for the people that, that we serve. And uh, it is my life's calling and my true passion. Um, and I think a lot of my work there has actually informed my, my, my philosophy around games and how I approach game design and, and the stories I want to tell in games. Yeah, excellent stuff. And I will tell people the Netflix algorithms just a pen. Oh, like I'm doing a whole new podcast about that because I work in acting. But <laughs> you, you have to put daughters space of, and then you will find that otherwise you'll just find Gilmore Girls and stuff. But it is on there, I promise you. <laughs> and uh, it's one of the most liked shows on Netflix as well. It's got a special badge in it. So yeah, it's a bit of a tearjerker almost. It hits in the fields, I guess, as the kids would say, that, that program. But yeah, yeah, great work that you're doing there. Really good stuff. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Great. Well, I think we're up on time. So thanks very much for coming on. It's been excellent to speak to you about Radio Citadel and other things. Yeah, it's been great. It was just, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you both for having me. No problem. Thanks, Ajit. And we, we look forward to having you on again when you've written your next book. <laughs> I'll be happy to drop by anytime. 